Last week, as you know, we began a series in the, uh, in the book of Jonah, and I've been reading some great ex- ex- experts on the culture and theology of the book, and they shed a lot of light on it for me. And at our life group on Thursday night, um, Jim Logathetis, who leads our group, being a very thorough, very meticulous engineer, brought up another source material that he has personally found extremely helpful in understanding the book of Jonah. So Jim, where are you? Thank you so much. Marion and I actually did watch uh, this la- VeggieTale version last night. We watched it last night, 1130. I, I was you know, finishing up watching that movie. And I now feel as though I have a fuller understanding of the theology of the book of Jonah. So thank you so much, Jim, my life group leader. Many people um, have heard the story of Jonah and, uh, and the whale, which is a good thing and a bad thing. It's a good thing, like we said last week, because whenever you're talking about something, it's good if you have some you know, common threads that you can at least work off of. It's bad because a lot of times a little knowledge can be a dangerous thing, right? And you have a little knowledge, you think you know more than you really know, and you end up screwing up the conclusions, and, and you start saying wrong things and doing wrong things, and really don't have a good understanding uh, of, uh, of what this is about. And a lot of times, wrong conclusions, when we come to bad conclusions, because we only have a little knowledge, it causes a lot of pain, not just for us, but for other people as well. Now, many of the people who have heard the story, or think they've heard the story of the book of Jonah, Believe that the message of the book of Jonah is basically this. You know, you disobey God and some terrible thing is going to happen to you. You're going to be at Wildwood this summer and you'll be swimming and a shark will grab you, take you out to the deep end and swallow you piece by piece. Or out of the blue, your company will be attacked and swallowed up by your largest competitor, firing 40% of the old company's workforce in the process. You see, a lot of people think that this is a story of you reap what you sow. Now, I believe that, you know, it's a biblical truism and a biblical concept, right? You reap what you sow. That came from the Bible. It's not from Benjamin Franklin or something like that, okay? And I believe that. I truly do. But if you think that the book of Jonah is a story of you reap what you sow, you're wrong. That is not what this is about. That is not what the book of Jonah is about. See, the book of Jonah, in a nutshell, is this. A man runs from God, and God, not content to lose him, runs after him. But the way in which he ran after him, it's, it's kind of an unusual way. It's not a natural way that we think someone would run after someone else. As Lee just read for us in verse 1, it says, The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. Now, Jonah, as we said last week, if you were here, wanting nothing to do with God's plans for his life, which was to travel 550 miles northwest to Nineveh, instead, and tell them that, you know what, you need to repent because judgment is coming, instead gets on a ship as portrayed wonderfully in my new source material, VeggieTales movie. He goes uh, 2,500 miles to the west, really in an opposite direction, which is quite comical because he says, he states that he wants to get away from the Lord. And Jonah knew that he couldn't get away from the Lord. He had read Psalm 139. He knew that God was everywhere. Now, last week, we mentioned that there were some results of Jonah 
deciding to disobey God. Number one, uh, one of the results was that it affected his eyes, okay, because he couldn't see things clearly. As far as he was concerned, when he started to run from God, this is a straight path away from God. But what happened is that he had this terribly myopic vision all of a sudden, and he could only see as far as the end of his nose, which means that he could not at all see the twists and the turns and the disaster that lay just a little bit down the road. That was one of the results. Another result of his decision to disobey God was that he knew that he had to, out of necessity, start running. Getting away as far and as fast as he could from God's presence because he knew instinctively as a prophet of God that he could not wantonly disobey God and remain in his presence. So what did he do? He ran the other way. Now this week, I want to back up just a little bit and ask the question, why? Why? Why did he run in the first place? Because maybe if we see why Jonah ran, we could discover why sometimes we run from God, which always ends up in disaster when we run from God. It always ends up in disaster. Well, here it is. You ready? This is it. Get, get your, sharpen your pencils. This is, this is the whole thing right here. Jonah ran because God's call made no sense to him. Jonah ran because the call of God and his life made absolutely no sense to him. And Jonah thought that that was a great reason to tie up his Nikes really tight and to start running. Because in Jonah's mind, this was a great, great reason to run. Listen, nobody does something, whatever it is, for no reason at all. You have to be crazy just to, just, just, just to act willy-nilly and have no, no reason, you know, even then. People do whatever they do. They take actions for a reason. Now, it may not be a good reason. It may even be a sinful reason, but nobody does stuff just because they do stuff. They do what they do for a reason. Jonah thinks he has a really good reason a really good reason to run from God. Now, I want to briefly skip ahead to Jonah chapter 4, which we'll be looking at in great detail a little bit further down this series. And it is there that he tells us, we find out the reader why, in his mind, he had a good reason to fly, go put his Nikes on and start running. Now, this is a spoiler alert. I want you to know right now, uh, if you have been following the series these last two weeks and you purposely have not read ahead the book of Jonah, you've never heard the book of Jonah before, and you really want to know, you know, close your eyes right now and, and put your, because I'm going to just give you to what happens. Okay, basically, he gets swallowed by a big fish. He spends three days and nights inside the great fish. He spit up on dry land. He goes to Nineveh. He preaches to them, and they actually listen to him. See, that's the story of the book of Jonah. Now, here's what God's prophet says at the time of the great repentance. That's going to be the, the name of the uh, sermon about five, four weeks down the road, three, four weeks down the road. Here's what he, he says at that time. He said this. He goes there. He, he preaches. They repent. He said, isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? This is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. Notice Jonah uh, knows he's up against the big guy. 
He's up against the big guy, and he knows he probably won't win, but at least if he could slow God down a little bit. This all makes quite a lot of sense, I'm sure, to everybody here, right? If he could slow him down a little bit, at least he can have some satisfaction. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. I can hear Jonah. Not for nothing, Lord. Not for nothing. But this is why I ran in the first place. I knew this might. I, there was a small chance, a very small chance, but I knew there was a possibility that this could happen. I knew that if I called the people to repent, they might listen. And you, being the gracious, compassionate God that you are, I knew that you would forgive them. That's why I ran. Folks, just as an aside, just as an aside, okay? Here's a preacher who gives an invitation at the end of the sermon. Everybody in the whole church comes forward. Everybody. People from the balcony, you know? If you want to know Christ, if you'd like to trust Christ as your own Savior, everybody comes forward. It's up to here. They start coming up in here. They're, they're all over. The, the worship team is like this. The worship team's backing up because everybody has to come forward. And they're, they're coming. They're, there's not one person in their seat there, and the preacher gets bummed out. The preacher's disappointed. It'd be like going to your local Toyota sales guy, and he speaks to 10 guys on a particular Wednesday afternoon. And every time he gets to the punchline, John, what can I do to get you to drive out today behind the wheel of a new Camry? He gets to that, and all 10 people go, you don't got to do anything. This is the greatest thing. I, this is the greatest car I've ever seen. This is the greatest deal I've ever had. I, you could charge me more money. That's fine. I don't care. You, you know, what, what do you have to say? You don't have to say anything. I'm ready to buy right now. And then the salesman goes home that night after selling 10 vehicles. She says, honey, how was your day? He goes, lousy. He had just experienced the best day of his entire life. And he says, you know what? Things aren't going so well. I'm really disappointed in what's happening. Now, some people... Some people think that Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh because Jonah was afraid of failure. I get it. I, I haven't done things in my life because I'm afraid of failing. Listen, I truly believe Jonah was filled with fear. But he was not filled with the fear of failure. He didn't want to go because he was afraid of success. He was afraid things might just work out. He was afraid that they would do exactly what he asked them to do. Repent. And he didn't want to see that happen. That's the last thing that he wanted to see happen in this city to these people. Now follow this. Follow this. If by some small chance they end up repenting, then everything in which Jonah had worked for everything as far as the world his world view and everything is concerned everything about what he believed what the world was and how the world should run if they repent everything's up for grabs now because the way i thought things worked are not working like that they just aren't and friends i got to tell you something that is the most scary time in a person's life. When they are confronted with a situation that, you know what? 
This doesn't fit into any of the... This is not the, pat the paradigm of how things are supposed to work out. It just isn't. And so now they have to go back, and they literally have to rethink how they have lived their life. This is why people are often fearful, even thinking, even thinking about changing the course of their life. This is one of the main reasons why people who are raised in a certain religious tradition so often will stay in that religious tradition way, way, way past the point that they started asking questions and started saying, this is baloney, I don't like this, I don't get this. Way past that point. Why? Because if they settle in their hearts and minds, you know what, there is something wrong. If a guy comes up to them and says, you know, you need to consider this, they kind of do this because if they don't do this, then maybe they need to listen. And if they listen, they, gotta, they have to restructure their entire life. They have to look back in the last 45 years and say, 45 years, I've been doing the wrong thing. This is why when, when, when people from the crossing come to me and say, I'm praying for my family. I'm praying for this one. I'm praying for my dad. And you know what? They, they, won't, even, they won't even visit the church. They won't even, they're afraid to walk in to this premise right here that where we are. And I'm saying something, it's not that unusual. It's just not that unusual. Why? Because if by chance they hear you talking and you say, oh, we really love our church and we should, God's doing this in my life. They hear that. They, they really don't want to hear that. Because it could be, maybe 1% chance, just one, maybe even less than 1% chance, that they will be confronted with something they don't know what to do with. They won't even know what to do. So you know what's easier? Take a step back. Take a step back back, let alone leaving their traditions. It's almost like you're turning your back on your family sometimes. And that, that's intolerable. That, you know what? And I was thinking about it. I was thinking about it in the wee hours this morning. That is one of the ways that I know that if someone hears the gospel and decides to follow Christ, it is a work of God calling them because no one likes to think that they have been walking down the wrong path until right that moment. Nobody wants to do that. You see, Jonah was rebellious, but Jonah wasn't a dope. He wasn't stupid. If he was to go with a message of judgment for sins committed, then there must be, see, he's a smart guy, there must be at least a chance for them to mend their ways. Why would God say, go and tell them, you know what, I'm about to destroy the city because you're so sinful, you're so evil, you're so terrible. If, if that was, he wouldn't, you wouldn't need Jonah. It's just Sodom and Gomorrah, boom! Nuclear explosion, it's all gone. But Jonah knew in his mind that that wasn't the end game. That the God's end game was to get these people to repent. And if he was successful in his ministry, then everything that he believed would have to be reassessed. Everything. And that was intolerable. So what did he do? He ran. Because to him, the call that God, according to his paradigm of how things should work, how the world should work, how people should work, how God should operate, God's call didn't make any sense. It made absolutely no sense. How did it make no sense? Well, Jonah ran because God's call made no sense morally. It made no moral sense. He obviously knew better than God about morality and stuff like that. But, you know, one, one thing that Jonah thought he knew better than God was cities and city living. See, this is a very cosmopolitan guy. He's been around, you know. 
God's up on his throne. He's doing whatever he does, but he's not living down here in the city. See, cities are different. Uh, you know, cities uh, often embody the best and the worst of human nature and human life on planet Earth. That's, that's absolutely true. You know what you see in the cities? In the cities, you see the mundane, the dramatic, and the tragic. All doing this. It's all together. It's all, it's, it's all mixed together. Cities are some of the most exciting places on Earth. You go to the theater. You go to the best restaurants. You can take in the cult- culture of the opera. Oh! And the museums, you go, to, you go to see the Rangers play in New York City at Madison Square Garden. But they're also crazy places. They are also some of the saddest places you'll ever see on the planet. And look, and i got to tell you something. Often the romanticism of the city is dashed as you step over the first homeless person. You know, right, right, right around, around Madison Square Garden there. And then there's another. And, there's another. and all of a sudden, you know, well, this is, this is part of the city, too. And I, I can try to avert my eyes as much as I can. But this guy's living here. This woman lives here. When the postman comes to deliver mail, they come here to this part of the street. And you can smell and, and the sights and their sad places, too. Cities, one person wrote this. Cities hold out the promise of excitement and the threat of danger at once sites of corruption and of great human achievement. Whenever I go into the city, folks, I got to tell you, get my water here. Whenever I go into the city, I am more fearful, sad, uh, than, than I am excited for the most part. I, 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 see, I see some of that, uh, the, the stuff that's not so good about the city. You know what? I think Jonah did too. I think Jonah did. I'm not thrilled that I'm Cozying up to Jonah here, folks. You know, believe me right now. But I, I, think, I think that's what Jonah would have said, too. I wonder if Jonah would have questioned God, you know, about, you know, how hopeless and how evil and how corrupt cities were. You know, God, you, you realize that this is a corrupt place, right? You, you realize that this town that you have asked me to go to, this great, the greatest city on the planet is corrupt. And, folks, you know what, though? When you think about it, follow me with this. If it's true... That on this planet, only men and only women are made in the image of God? Then where do you see, more than any place on the planet, the image of God displayed? Is it out in the country that we all want to run to? Oh, there's a neighbor. My neighbor's 300 yards down the road. Is there more the image of God in the country or more the image of God in the cities? See, this is why I know this is why I know that when I go to the city and I see the degradation and I feel sorry and I see, you know, the opulence and you go into, you know, sacks and people are spending, you know, $3,000 for a pocketbook and this guy can't even get a meal. And I see that kind of stuff and it drives me crazy. See, I know God is working in the cities. I know he is working in the cities because those who are made in his image populate the cities. His heart has got to be for highly populated places, even with all, with all its many, many challenges. I'm not sure if Jonah knew God, that God knew that. I'm not sure if he knew that. And folks, i got to tell you, this is no ordinary city. This was no ordinary city. Nineveh was one of the most prominent foreign, uh, foreign cities in, uh, described in the Old Testament. And at the time of the writing of the book of Jonah, by far, not even a close second, by far the most powerful. You know how the second place guy is like a country mile behind the first? It's, it's like, why even run? They are the most powerful, the richest, the most evil city on the planet. Jonah describes the city later on 
as really huge. We'll see. It took him th- three days to walk through it. Started on, on the west side, went to the east side, took him three, three days. And although sinful, Jonah gives no specifics about the city's evil. Beyond later on, what the, when the king makes his pronouncement, he goes, you know what? We're in trouble, the king says. And basically the king says, you know what? Uh, uh, the, the, the citizens have to mend their evil ways and their violence. Here's the king. Here's the head of the government. This, is the, this isn't a democracy. Well, we got to pass laws. We'll go to Congress. This guy speaks, and it's law. The violence and the evil of the city made its way directly back to him. And he is saying, this is a violent, this is an evil city. Now, Jonah was very keen on the political climate in his day. The historical Nineveh was the capital, and you can Google this later. It was the uh, capital of the uh, uh, Neo-Assyrian Empire in the late 7th century B.C. Now, there was no love loss. You have to know this. There was no love loss between the ancient Israelites and Nineveh. No matter what happened here in this story, this is separate now, about 150 years later, Nineveh was eventually destroyed. You know, Nahum, if you read the book of Nahum, you know what Nahum is? Nahum is a spiking the football, Nahum, the whole book of Nahum, when, when Assyria is destroyed by the Babylonians. That's what it is. He, so, Nahum is so happy. They're doing, you know, today you're going to see the, they'll do something after a touchdown. They all, they all pretend they're taking a picture of something. They all celebrate. That's what the book of Nahum is, that Assyria has finally been destroyed. Now, there was a time when they repented at this time that we're talking about right now. We're not really concerned about the future, but we know that during the time of Nahum, they went back to their old ways because Nahum put it like this. He said the city, this is what he called Nineveh, the city of blood, full of lies, full of plunder, never without victims, lives destroyed, families destroyed, piled up one on, upon another upon another. How easily we fall back to the same sins which once we were delivered from. Now, you can view the Assyrians' ruthless military tactics if you go to the British Museum in London. And you know, you know what we know about Nineveh? You know what we know about the Assyrians? War. We know war. Basically, almost everything we know about Assyria and, and Nineveh has to do with war. They were a ruthless, warlike people. You go again to the, uh, Assyrian, uh, the, the British Museum, you'll see all about this. Assyrian national history, as it's preserved for us in inscriptions and pictures, consists almost solely of military campaigns and military battles. It is as folks, and I can, I'm not going to be able to, I, I want to draw a little picture, but I can't do it justice, or injustice. I can't, I can't give it. It is, the, the, the history of, of the military conquest of the Assyrians is as gory and blood-curdling a history as you can possibly imagine. The other day, I spent an entire afternoon reading about Assyrian culture. Folks, I could, this is true, I could barely sleep that night. I could barely sleep. Known for its utter ruthlessness and effective military system, this is what historian Simon Anglum said about the ancient state of ascending 
Assyria. He said Assyrians are an aggressive, murderously vindictive regime supported by a magnificent and successful war machine. As with the German army of World War II, the Assyrian army was the most technologically and doctrinally advanced in its day and was a model for other generations to come. Other, gener other cultures want to say, we want to be as ruthless as the Assyrians, but you know we have to go? We have to go to the Assyrians. We have to read the annals of their history. That's where we, that's where we learn about brutality. Which made the Assyrians, really, their military prowess, the first superpower of the ancient world. And, and the most cruel. The Assyrians created tablets that showed them torturing their enemies, which they often sent ahead. This is what they did. Uh, we're going to attack that nation now. So what they did, they made depictions. They're chiseling out the guys, you know, as to what's going on. You know, they're murdering people. And they sent the tablets ahead saying, you know what? You're next, and we're going to do this to you. So that, that by the time they showed up, they were almost like, they, they, the people were, their hearts were destroyed. Do you know that there are stories of cities and nations who the Assyrians hadn't even looked in their direction yet to conquer? And they sent envoys to say, we give up. We know you're not even looking at us, but we give up already. What do you want? How much should we send you? That's the terror that they put into the hearts of these other countries. Uh, by the time they reached your walls, the, the stories had spread, and, and, and uh, uh, they, these, these horrible depictions showed them skinning their victims alive, blinding them, impaling them on stakes. One Assyrian king named uh, Asher Nasipal II left a whole series of tablets behind that we still have, and the descriptions are po positively terrorizing. He said, I flayed many right through my land and draped their skins over walls. I'm not going to go into what flaying is. Okay? You Google it later. He boasts in, one, in one, one of the tablets, I burned their adolescent boys and girls alive. A pillar of heads I erected in front of the city. And after catch, capturing the enemy, many times they would cut off both legs and one arm. Do you know why they would leave one arm? A stump in one arm? So that the Assyrian army, when they passed by, could shake their hands, mocking them as they bled to death. These were the Assyrians. When they killed a family member, they beheaded them in front of the family. They would take the head, they would put a rope around it, and they tie it around other family members as they led them into captivity or led them to their own death. When he defeated a rebelling city, this particular king, he made sure that they paid a huge price. Disobedient cities were destroyed and raised to the ground with fire and their wealth and all the material riches taken by their king. The youth and the women were either burned alive or made into slave and, or placed in a harem. The Assyrians, folks, after you read this, after you read this stuff, I think I could say that they possibly were the world's first terrorist state. The Assyrians. During Jonah's lifetime... They had already begun to collect heavy tribute from Israel and continued to threaten the Jewish northern kingdom through his entire lifetime. In 722, it finally did invade and destroy Israel's northern kingdom and its capital, Samaria. You can read about that in Scripture. See, God's call to Jonah to go and ask them to repent, what are you, nuts? It made absolutely no moral sense. Has God lost all sense of justice? 
Why, why on earth would God give these people mercy? Why would he offer comfort to the enemy of his people? If ever, if ever there was a people that needed destroying, it was the, the Assyrians. If ever there was a city that needed judgment, it was Nineveh. And Jonah, it seems, had a keener sense of moral, the moral nature of the universe, obviously, than even God. There's another issue that made him rant. Jonah ran because God's call not only made no moral sense, it made no theological sense. It made no theological sense. He was a nation that was threatening to destroy God's very people. Now, soon after our first parents sinned and threw the world into chaos, uh, uh, you know, and, 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 and God in the Garden of Eden, if you read the story in Genesis chapter 3, is pronouncing judgment on the man, on the woman, on the ground, blah, blah, on, on everything. But at the same time, he gives the message right there and then of a coming deliverer. And in Genesis 3.15, he says uh, to the serpent, And I will put enmity between you and the woman, this is Satan, and between your offspring and hers, he will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. In other words, you're going to put a big hurt on this deliverer, but eventually he's going to crush you dead. He's going to crush your head. This was coming uh, uh, for, for this, this serpent his end. We know that Jesus Christ was the deliverer. We know that. We read ahead in the book. Now, years later, God's plan went into effect, and he called an idol worshiper by the name of Abram from a faraway land that nobody had ever heard of, and he spoke over him, and this is what he said to Abram. He said, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will, I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. Look at this. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Every Jewish person was well aware of the covenant promises made by God to their father, whose name was changed to Abraham. God had given his people a missional call from their inception. From their birth, he had given them a missional call to the world. But listen, folks, think about this one. How can a missional call be accomplished if the ones who are supposed to be used to put that call into effect are all dead or all enslaved? Just how is that supposed to happen? Nineveh, at any time, threatened to swoop down and destroy the very people, the chosen people of God, the people of the message at any time, on any given Tuesday, they could have swept down and destroyed them. Always the threat, always the threat, always the fear. To give pardon to a reprobate nation like this, made to Jonah no theological sense at all, since a successful mission would only destroy the very promises of God Himself, wouldn't it now? Jonah ran because God made no theological sense when he called him. There's one more thing, though. God's call to Jonah made no personal sense. No personal sense. Verse 1 says, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Now, the reader may not have known who Amittai was, but the readers were already very familiar with Jonah. It wasn't like, you know, oh, who's Jonah? See, Jews know who Jonah was because there was a record of Jonah previously in the Old Testament Scripture. In 2 Kings chapter 14, it says this, In the 15th year of Amaziah, son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, son of Joash, king of Israel, became king in Samaria, and he reigned 41 years. 
He did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and did not turn away from any of the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, which he had caused Israel to commit. He was the one who restored the bound. Listen. He was the one, this king, who restored the boundaries of Israel from Lebohamath to the Dead Sea, in accordance with the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, spoken through his servant, Jonah, son of Amittai, the prophet from Gath Hefer. So in other words, with Jonah, for the people of Israel, you got the book of Jonah, he didn't need any introduction. Now, listen, follow me. Many times, the, the, the jobs of a prophet, very unenviable job. They had to go to the, rulers, the, the movers and shakers and the rulers of their country and say, you guys are living in sin. You guys are screwing up. You, you, you are, uh, you, you're filled with sin. You're filled with compromise. You're filled with unfaithfulness. God is angry with you. Tough job. Yeah, tough job. Jonah was not one of them. Jonah was called on. You know what he was called on to do? to support the king and his aggressive military policy to extend the nation's power and influence. In other words, as, as the king was, was going out and he's winning battles, here's Jonah's job. boy, go do it again. Gee, you're getting a lot of trouble doing that with the leader, right? I mean, if you're there saying, you know, you're doing a great job. There's nothing, you know, keep going, keep going, keep going. That was the prophet's job previously. Now, the original readers of the book of Jonah would have remembered him as an intensely patriotic and a highly partisan nationalist. That's who Jonah was. You know, xenophobic? Oh, my gosh. Jonah was the guy who believed, you know what? Israel, and then everybody else is like, you know, everybody else is like way, way down here. And here God sends this prophet to preach a message of repentance. With the hope of mercy to a people, he both feared and loathed. And to, God asked him to betray the very interests of his country. Betray the very interests of his own country. This mission, folks, and I hope you're getting the grasp of this now. This mission was not only about the people of Nineveh. This mission was about Jonah. God called Jonah to save Jonah, not just to save the people of Nineveh. Now, dare I say that God in heaven was not shocked when the prophet upped and ran, revealing the fact that Jonah never really understood the heart of God and really never understood the missional call of Israel. But you know what? God was going to put him in a position where he was indeed going to be confronted with his own prejudices and his own self-righteousness. Why? In order to save him. To save him. Nothing about this mission made sense. It didn't add up morally. It didn't add up theologically. It didn't add up personally. This was not a mission. This was an evil plot against Jonah, as far as he was concerned. Jonah wanted those lifelong enemies of Israel, the dirty, pagan, evil to the core Ninevites, destroyed, not saved. Jonah looked at this as a fool's mission, as a mission from a god his God, who had obviously lost his moral and theological edge. A God who obviously did not understand Jonah himself. Because you know what? Only a fool would try to go and seek reformation of a city so thoroughly evil and so thoroughly debased. Only a fool would order an operation that in its nature could upset and undo the theological underpinnings of a plan set in stone from the very Garden of Eden and threaten to destroy his people. See, only a fool, only a fool... God was a fool. 
That's what Jonah thought. Jonah had determined since he could see no good reason for God's command to him. Then you know what? Since he couldn't see a good reason, there probably wasn't a good reason. In fact, I'm sure there's no good reason that it was even issued in the first place. We sit in the doctor's office, and he comes in with a biopsy report in hand and a grim look on his face. And your heart sinks. It just sinks. Three times you made it to the final round of interviews. You haven't worked in two years. Three times you hear, you know what? I was so sorry. It really came down to you and the other guy who got the job. But thanks so much. You know, and, and if, if, we, if we need you, we'll call. Thanks for applying. The seemingly made in heaven relationship. The kind you always wanted but never, ever dreamed that you would ever get now it's gone sideways, and your soul has been crushed, and all of a sudden your future has been taken away. I, I believe in God. I, 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 you know, I trust his word. I thought I did. You know, but now, in this, this, this time, I think he got it wrong. I cannot help but think that God got it wrong. I am seriously beginning to wonder if he even knows what he's doing. Does he? Or if my long-held belief in this sovereign special plan for me was just something that, something he just, you know, he just got wrong. I wonder if he knows what he's doing. Folks, listen. When the realization hits us that the God we had fashioned is not the real God as he really is, it is a crushing realization. Crushing. When John the Baptist was languishing in prison just before his execution, he was in this rat-infested, below-ground, freezing cold. I'm sure he was shivering every minute of every day underground there. And what did he say? His disciples came to visit him. And what did he tell his disciples to do? Do you remember? He said, go back to Jesus and say, are you the one? Are, are you the one that we were to expect? Or is there another coming? This from the man who not long before took his disciples and saw Jesus coming down the road and said, behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Any doubt, John the Baptist, with that? No doubt. No doubt at all. I lay my life on the line for it. But things were happening that probably shouldn't happen. God was acting in a way that God shouldn't act. Herod should be down, and God's people, through redemption, should be up. God's people should be experiencing victory, not, in, not a rat-infested underground, freezing cold prison cell. Folks, let me tell you what that is. Number one, it's very common. Number one, it's, it's who we are. We like to fashion God after the God that we have in our minds. But let me tell you what it is, bottom line. It's sin. It is sin. To think that we can fashion a God to our liking, for our benefit, that we could look at and say, come follow my God. Come follow. He'll never, you'll never be disappointed. You'll never go through hardship. You'll never, you know what? Come, come see my God. We all fashion a God to our liking. One who lives according to our worldview, according to our experiences. Folks, i got to tell you something. I believe it's sin, but it's not like a gunshot wound. 
Somebody comes up, they blow your head off with a gunshot, you're dead. See, this is like being exposed to you know, radioactive material. This is, this is the kind of sin that comes in, you know, like you don't, even, you don't even feel different. You just got hit with whatever, you know, a, a lethal dose of radioactivity, and you're going, what's for dinner? It, you, don't even, you don't even feel different. But over time, listen, over time, all of a sudden, the effects of this sin of making God into a God that we like, that we have fashioned with our own hands, will kill us. It will destroy us. Here's something that I've learned. Something I've learned. God is a shocking God who rarely conforms to the image of my self-centered imagination. Rarely. His plans are bigger. His love is much wider. His grace reaches much further than I could ever imagine, even to people who in no way deserve it. And who in most cases never even asked for it. Never even asked for it. You know, the kind of people like, like you, like me. There's a story of a wicked witch who had a, uh, uh, a little hideaway in the middle of the woods, and, and she had a wonderful bed. It was, almost, it, was a, it was a magical bed, the most comfortable bed on the planet, it was said. And people would come, and they would stay in the house, and she would say, please come in, in my house, stay one night, sleep in my most comfortable bed in, in, in all the world. You'll have the best night's sleep you've ever had. But there was one thing, one thing. As people fell deeply asleep in the bed, in this, in this witch's home, she would sneak in, and she basically would turn them in the middle of the night to stone. And the next morning, she, she would pick them out of the bed and plant them in the garden with all her other statues. A young servant girl who lived in the house finally became wise to the witch's schemes. And one day a visitor came who the young girl fell in love with. That night as the visitor slept, she crept into his room and she threw little sticks and sharp stones under the covers so that soon he woke up and every time he turned to the left and every time he turned to the right, he would get in his side, in his leg, in his ankles, he would feel the sharpness and pretty soon he was up and he couldn't sleep the rest of the night. Now the next day he found out what had happened and he was grumpy and he was mad that he was going to have to face the entire day now with so little sleep because of her actions. And he was chastising her and she said this to him. She said, the misery you have now is nothing compared to the misery you would have had that your comfort would have eventually brought you. See, God pursues those whom he loves, and he throws sticks, and he throws stones into our comfortable arrangements because he knows if he doesn't step in exactly where it's going to lead. God was not willing to let Jonah continue in his way, his crooked way of thinking, you know what verse 4 says? Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. Next week, Jonah throws himself into the sea, but he doesn't drown. The only way you can drown if you are running from God is if you keep running to the very end. That's the only way. Such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. 
but there's a sound. There's a crashing of waves. The inscrutable, surprising, loving, gracious, all-knowing God is on the move. Can you hear him? Can you hear him? There is always love in the middle of a God-ordained storm. There is always a fish. And the only way you can drown if you are running from God is if you keep running and running and running to the end of your life. That's the only way. That is not God's plan for you. It's not God's desire for you. God's desire for you is a life of meaning here on this earth. It's an abundant life and then life eternally with him and with all the saints who have trusted in Jesus Christ as their Lord and their Savior.